Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwinunu. Today, we have a special edition. We're featuring multiple conversations that Jill and I had in recent days, a couple with the family members of Israeli hostages currently being held in the Gaza Strip, and a conversation Jill had with a survivor from that music festival who saw, sadly, tragically, horrifically, close family members die in that attack. As of this taping, it's been more than 46 days for these family members as they've been awaiting a word of the status of their loved ones in the Gaza Strip. More than 240 individuals are currently being held by Hamas and other terror groups in the Gaza Strip. Among the conversations you'll hear today is one I had with Effie Yahalomi. Her brother, Ohad, and his son, her nephew, her 12-year-old nephew, Eitan, were kidnapped and currently being held there. She tells the remarkable story of the family, including how her sister-in-law and her two daughters were able to escape Hamas on that day, only to come back to their kibbutz and find out that her husband and the son were taken to Gaza. You'll also hear from Rotem Cooper. Both of his parents were taken hostage. They're 84 and 79 years old, respectively. Notably, his father still being held. His mother, Nurit, was one of the two elderly women that was released just after 17 days. He'll talk about her status, her story, as much as she can tell right now, as well as what he knows about the fate of his father. My co-host, Jill Wagner, also had the opportunity to speak with Lee Sassi. She's an American woman from California who was at that Supernova Music Festival in Israel when Hamas terrorists started the attack at the music festival. More than 300 people were murdered or kidnapped. Lee is now back in the U.S. She speaks with Jill about how she was able to survive and how some of her close family members were not. These are some very difficult conversations, but important conversations um, as we try to bring you the individual stories of the people impacted by this war. We're going to begin with our first conversation with Effie Yahalomi, who lives in Portland, Oregon. Again, her brother and her nephew are currently being held hostage. My name is Effie. I live in Portland. My brother, Ohad Yahalomi, and my 12-year-old nephew, Eitan, are held uh, hostage in Gaza. On that uh, Saturday morning, um, the family woke up to sirens. They used to it, so they went to the safe room, thinking that um, it's another round, regular round. Right, so they live right on the border where where rockets come in, and typically they'll go to the shelter for a few minutes or sometimes a couple hours and wait until the siren ends. Yes. And, uh, okay, I didn't say, they live in kibbutz near Oz, Mm -hmm. which is about a mile from the border. Soon enough, they understood that this is something different happening. They sat uh, in the safe room for about two hours, and then when they heard the terrorists coming closer to the house... They couldn't close the the safe room. The, they couldn't lock the safe room. They couldn't close it properly. Mm. The handle was broken or whatever. And uh, my brother decided to go out of the safe room and shut the door on the family and protect them from outside. When terrorists came into their house, uh, there was uh, some negotiation between them and my brother, and they shot him in his leg and in his arm. Uh, he fell wounded on the floor. Then they broke into the safe room and took Bacheva, the mother, and her three kids, Eitan, 12, a 10-year-old girl, and a 20-month-old um, baby. 
so uh, they went out of the safe room. They saw Ad on the floor bleeding. Uh, he told them that he loves them. And then they they went uh, out. Uh, they put them on two different motorcycles. Bacheva and the girls on, on one motorcycle and they turn on the other motorcycle. Bacheva said that there were tons of people in the house, in the kibbutz, uh, civilians, not only ter- uh, Hamas terrorists. Uh, civilians meaning Palestinian civilians. Palestinians, yes, I'm sorry, Palestinian civilians. Like non-Hamas like just non-Hamas, would enter. Hamas, yeah. um, uh, kids and women that came and just look for whatever they can actually uh, loot or, uh, Looting. Yeah. Yeah. They started to uh, ride the bikes uh, into Gaza direction. Uh, about 200 meters from Gaza came two tanks, Israeli IDF tanks, and um, you know, destructed the, the motorcycles. Batsheva and, and the girls' motorcycle fell. Uh, so it's Batsheva and her two daughters. Two daughters, yeah. yes. Uh, the motorcycle fell, and uh, that was and a tan's motorcycle continued uh, riding into Gaza. That was the last time they saw a tan. In a moment of courage, uh, Batsheva decided that she's going to run away. She had the opportunity. The terrorist uh, left because of the tanks. Uh, um, so there's an interaction so, with the tanks, the motorcycle falls over, but Sheva, with the two daughters, decides to make a run for it. Yes. They ran into the kibbutz uh, barefoot with their pajamas. Uh, that's how they took them for three and a half hours in the middle of the, day, of the, of the way. Uh, they got uh, tired, so Batsheva told the girls, uh, now we need to pretend dead because they needed to rest. Uh, so they lay, lay on the ground and pretend dead. In another uh, incident, they met uh, two other terrorists uh, who actually advised them to come. They asked them to come with them to Gaza because the, the kibbutz is burning out and uh, there are shooting and it's not safe there. And Batsheva saw that they are not armed. So she decided to say no and ran in the kibbutz direction. When they finally arrived in the kibbutz, they saw a bus with soldiers, uh, IDF soldiers, um, and they, the bus actually took them to a safe place. So Batsheva and the girls are in a safe place now in central Israel. When Batsheva went into the bus, she saw, she asked one of the soldiers uh, to call. Uh, she called my sister and she told her that Ohad uh, was left wounded in the house and he needs to be rescued. When rescue came, they didn't see Ohad. Uh, in the beginning, we thought, I mean, we were hoping that he's one of those anonymous wounded uh, people hospitalized. But after a few days, we've been told that, uh, that he's kidnapped again as well. What else have they been able to tell you in the past month about his status, where he may be, how he might be? 
Not much. They haven't been able to give you... Nothing. You woke up on October 7th hearing the news. Talk to me about how you you learned of all of this and, and if you can even find the words, describe what that day was like and what the last month has like been for you. I'll tell you, I'm, I, I live in Portland, Oregon, so it was nighttime for me, okay? It was morning in Israel, but nighttime for us. Truly, I don't remember anything from that, uh, that evening uh, and that night. I don't even remember if I slept, if I was awake. The only thing, one thing that I remember is that I was following their um, WhatsApp uh, if they are, I wanted to see if they are available, okay, online. Uh, and at 12.14, 12.14 a.m. and 12.16 a.m., uh, both Batsheva and Duad disappeared from the, I mean, weren't uh, online anymore. Mm-hmm. And I told my husband that my family is gone. That's what I remember from that first, uh, that night or that morning in Israel. Uh, how is it like? Um, life is it's just impossible, impossible to, to handle, truly. It's impossible to, uh, to understand that this is actually, I feel that I'm talking about it and I'm telling a story that is not related to me. It's impossible to, uh, to understand that this is actually the reality. I'm, I mean, emotionally, I'm in a roller coaster. Sometimes hopeful. Most of the time, I'm trying to think positively. I imagine uh, how they come back. I plan what what I'm going to tell them, how I'm going to hug them. Uh, and that's what keeps me. It's like hell. <laughs> how is Bacheva and your nieces? Bacheva and uh, my nieces are doing uh, fine. She decided, Bacheva decided that they should uh, go to routine as quickly as possible. It will help to their emotion, emotionally, it will be better for them. Uh, so she put them back to school uh, in, a, in a new place, right? Not a, yeah, wait, they're staying somewhere else in Israel? Yes, yeah. yes. So, yeah, they, you know, they go, they, like us, day by day. Are you following, you know, all the various, there's a lot of headlines about hostage exchange. Are you following all of that? No. And what is your opinion? Do you have an opinion on all of that? As far as you're concerned, should the Israeli government give us all the prisoners that Hamas wants in order to bring home your family members and everybody else? Look, I'm a family. I mean, they need to do whatever needed to bring the, the hostages, all of them, home. I want to end here. Can you describe, describe for me Ohad, describe for me Eitan, what type of people are they? Ohad is the most good-hearted, humble person that I know. He would be the first one to jump and help anyone that is in need. He's a nature lover. 
Uh, that's why they live in the kibbutz. He's uh, an animal lover. He protects them. He works for the Israeli national authorities, uh, park authorities. That's what he does. He protects the nature. He protects the uh, the wildlife. He's a l- loving person. Eitan is an innocent 12 years old boy who never hurt a thing. He raised to love, love people, love animals, love, you know, life. A very happy uh, kid. He's a, he's a gifted uh, child. He studies in a um, science class. He's very curious. He plays soccer. He's in the youth league. They do not deserve to be held like this. They, one more thing to mention, my brother's family, and I believe that most of those uh, people who, who live in the kibbutz, in the kibbutzim, mm-hmm. they believe in peace. They believe in coexistence. They they even do things to you know to live in peace with uh, with the other side, mm-hmm. uh, with the Palestinians. So that's something a lot of people don't know is the people who live um, in those towns along the border. Many of them are believe in coexistence. It's one of the reasons they live where they live. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you very much. Okay, we're hoping and praying they come home immediately. Thank you. I want to thank Effie again for speaking out, for her bravery in telling her story and the story of her family. Now I want to bring you another conversation. This is with Rotem Cooper. He lives in California, but grew up on kibbutz near Oz. That kibbutz saw one in four individuals either kidnapped or murdered on October 7th, and it's a small community of just about 400 people. Among those taken hostage were his 84-year-old father, Amhiram, and his mother, 79-year-old Nurit. His father is still being held hostage in Gaza as we record this. His mother, incidentally, was one of the four hostages who was released by Hamas. You might remember the pictures of the two older women who were released earlier in the war. His mother, Nurit, was one of them. He tells her story and that of his father and gives us perspective on the aftermath of the attack in southern Israel. My name is uh, Rotem Cooper. I was born and raised in kibbutz near Oz. I'm a US citizen. In the last um, 30 plus years, I've been living in Southern California in San Diego. My uh, father, Amiram Cooper, 84 years old, and my mother, Nurit Cooper, 79 years old, are among the founders of kibbutz near Oz. On Saturday, October 7th, they both were kidnapped from their home to Gaza Strip. I was uh, in San Diego at the time, it was Friday night, and someone says there is a rocket attack in Israel, I made the call my parents, and I was able to talk to them uh, for a few times, uh, and they told me about what is transpiring, that they are thinking there are terrorists in the kibbutz, and they were told to barricade themselves in the safe room. Around 9.30 a.m. local time over there, it's more like 11.30 in the West Coast. That was the last time I was able to talk to them that day. That Saturday evening, 
when uh, eventually the army, the IDF, got to the community and they started to go door to door to see who survived, who was abducted. I was told that um, by a member of the community that they were not found in their home. I mean, they jumped on a, on a plane to Israel to go and talk to the people from the community to see what really happened and also went to the community itself, which is kind of a closed military area, but they let me in. I wanted to see what's happened over there. I wanted to see their very place. Uh, and I saw the bullets through the door, but there were, there were no blood signs. So the assumption was by us and also by the IDF that they were, uh, that they were kidnapped. It's been 17 long days. I was uh, on a delegation to Washington, D.C., where all of a sudden news came about the uh, release of my mother, Nurit Cooper. I turned around and, and went back to Israel, and indeed she was released. And I was with her for about two weeks. And uh, what she told me is that she was held in a, in a deep pit on the ground. Uh, together with my father, he's alive. This is in the tunnels? Yeah, it's, it's a tunnel that leads to a room and it's fairly deep. The conditions are not easy. It's very humid. They don't know a uh, day from not, night. And they were cut out completely uh, from the rest of the world. So they didn't know at all the level of catastrophe that's happened in Kibbutz Nirod. They didn't know that one out of four in Kibbutz Nirod is either murdered or kidnapped. We had 28 funerals by now, and uh, we have 75 people that are missing, that they are kidnapped and being held in Gaza. How many people lived on the kibbutz before the attack? 400. I don't think they were all at the community at the time, but if out of a community of 400, we have more than 100 that are either murdered or kidnapped, so one out of four. I'll try to make that number a bit more personal. So I grew up with other kids, same age, we call them classmates, we were 17 all together. So myself, my father, Amiron Cooper, and my mother, Nurit Cooper, and uh, my friend Boaz, his father, Arya Zalmanovich, and my friend, Rani Metzger, his parents, Yoram and Tommy Metzger, and my friend, Adafna, her mother, Ditsa Heyman, all of them are kidnapped. My mother then was released, the only one so far. Uh, my friend of Ner Goren, he was murdered. His wife, Maya Goren, uh, she is abducted and held uh, hostage. My friend Iftach, uh, his brother Aviv Atsili and uh, his, his brother wife, Liat Atsili, they both kidnapped. Uh, my friend Adas uh, Dan Calderon, her mother, Carmela Dan, and her niece, Noya Dan, they're murdered. Her two young kids, uh, Sahar and Erez, they're kidnapped. Uh, my friend El Yehud, her two kids, Dolev and Orbel Yehud, they're kidnapped. So I just ran kind of through the, my classmates, mm -hmm. and this is not an anomaly. This is the reality, and we have other classes of different years where the situation is actually much worse than what I just described to you. So this is, so you can understand in the community of 400, what's happened with one out of four is murdered or kidnapped. And for most of the people around the world, it's numbers. For us, it's people we grew up with. It's our fathers, it's our mothers, 
It's our sons and daughters, neighbors. Uh, each one is a story. So I just was trying to make this a bit more realistic for people. The community is grieving. It's in a very tough situation. A lot of the community members are missing. The community was evacuated. It's not living in the kibbutz. It's not going to live in the kibbutz for quite a while, maybe two years, because the kibbutz is ruined. Uh, one out of five houses are burned to the point it needs to be demolished and rebuilt. There is only soldiers living over there and a few volunteers to help with the livestock. Uh, it's an agriculture and nature place. The one thing that is holding the community right now is this huge effort to bring about the release of all hostages. Uh, we want to make sure it's the priority for decision makers in Israel, in the US, around the world, that the only acceptable outcome for the Neuros community, for the state of Israel, for the US, and for the entire world, all of humanity, is the immediate release of all the hostages with no arm, harm. I don't think we, I'm talking about humanity here, we're going to be able to live without ourselves unless all of them are coming out alive and unharmed. Uh, we have babies over there from the Neuros community. As, uh, I think we have a nine-month-old babies baby over there. We have people that are more like my father, 85 years old. They need their medication, and time is of the essence. To the extent that you can, tell me about what, how your mother described the two weeks that she was being held there, what the conditions were like, what they told her, what the interactions were, were like, and then how she learned that she was going to be released. So uh, there wasn't much interactions. Uh, they were just being held over there. The conditions are tough, and for her, she had a broken shoulder. and uh, That was broken during the That was broken attack. as part of the kidnapping, the brutal kidnapping, yeah. As I said, she couldn't even go to the restroom by herself. She needed some help. So the conditions are tough. It's very humid over there. You don't get to walk too much. You pretty much have mattresses and pillows. Or you don't even sit. You kind of, that, that's the conditions. And remember, that was 17 days. Now we talk about 41 days. It's, it's much tougher. Her glasses and my father's glasses were taken right away when they got kidnapped. So they didn't have their glasses throughout. So you don't see that well. You're disoriented. She learned, uh, actually, my father uh, told her that he understood a bit of what the guards were talking. He spoke Arabic. He's not really fluent, but he understood enough that he was telling her, they are taking you and you have it and they're releasing you. But it was fairly abrupt within a minute or two. Um, what was their relationship with Yochevet? They, they they're all uh, members of the Kibbutz Nirvaz, they're all founders of Kibbutz Nirvaz. So all the other people that shared room with them, they're all members, the people that they know long time, they're all members of the Nirvaz community. They're all kind of, in their particular room, it was 76 to 85, 86 years old. That was the, the range of ages. Uh, there were about five over there. So. When your father understood that they might be releasing her, what was her reaction? And then what did she told you about the release itself? It was very abrupt. So I don't think there was much time for reaction. It, they would just tell her, okay, go to the restroom if you need. 
and then they, they took her and you have it. And um, it, the, the climb out was quite difficult for her physically. So uh, we, from that, we kind of can understand how deep it was, you know, maybe 60 feet deep. Uh, it was very hard for her to climb. Also, she didn't, you know, she didn't, couldn't use her left so, uh, shoulder. Did she have any idea why she was chosen? No, no, nobody, nobody knows. Uh, you, you, we can speculate, but we don't know. Uh, no reason was shared with anybody. How is she doing? She is, is doing better. It's been some time, you know. Um, she is now more interacting with people. We need to see how her uh, shoulder is healing, you know. Uh, she is seeing a doctor. But yeah, it's been a process until she's more integrated into people and want to talk more. Uh, it took some time. Tell me about your father. My father uh, is a very central figure for the neuros communities among the founders. He was the first kind of manager, like we call it Merakez Meshik, which is a manager of the agriculture faction of the uh, kibbutz neuros. Around that region, uh, almost everybody knows him. He also uh, was writing uh, songs, uh, mostly for local anniversaries and events in the kibbutz. I think one of his songs actually was played on the radio in Israel. So he was he has he published uh, like two or three poetry books. The members of the neuros community, including my father and uh, my mother, they are more from the left side of the political map in Israel. They are very committed. They were very committed to a two-state solution. You know, it's irony that those are the people that were kidnapped. Uh, you know, they literally... The people who most believed it. Most should believe, be a Palestinian state. Most believe in human, everybody's, uh, you know, right to pursue uh, life and happiness, that we need a two-state solution, that we're volunteering uh, to drive Palestinian kids that needed... Uh, you know, medical treatment in Israel. The name of the organization is called Baderech uh, Lachlama on the way to recovery. Uh, they were all uh, volunteering to drive Palestinians that needed, like uh, you know, life-saving treatments uh, in Israel. So yeah, it's kind of ironic that those are the people that got mostly impacted. By... How many years are your parents married? Uh, so my parents are, uh, you know, they came to Niroz. Uh, it was uh, about sixty-six years ago. They probably got married uh, within seven years after that, so I would say uh, close to 60 years. Talk to me about your father's personality and, and if you can even imagine how he's trying to manage the situation he's currently in. So uh, my father is a conversation type of, uh, of a person. He really uh, likes to talk to people uh, and develop a conversation for them. So I can... I can imagine that he is developing a conversation with his capturers, the people that are guarding him. And uh, yeah, you know, I don't know what's the dynamics over there, but being being there uh, so long, they all they have to do, you know, all, all they can do is, is talk. They, they don't have, they don't get, uh, from what I understand from my mother, they did not get any form of media. So all they left is is to talk among themselves. And I'm assuming that they might even be talking, uh, start develop conversation with their captures. 
you know, there are probably some dynamics like this over there. Uh, I would like to believe that he's focusing on the day he's going to come out because he's an optimistic person and you need that. You need to think about that day that uh, it's going to, only going to be over and you're going to be released to survive through all this difficult time. And is your mother speaking out right now or she's not doing any media right now? She's not doing media for sure. Uh, she's personally, she speaks, but uh, she feels like she shared enough about the details and it's really hard to get together to speak about it again. I'll go in some details because I think the right time to go in, in more details. I understand the curiosity, but I really think that the time to go into the details is after the last uh, hostages is coming out from there. Uh, yes, there were lights, but there were long hours where there were no power. Uh, they didn't hear too much of the war above ground uh, because it's quite deep. Uh, maybe they felt some vibrations here and there. But the conditions were, were tough. You know, the, the food was very basic and they were pretty much doing nothing all day. When you say basic, what were they being served? Like uh, pita bread with cheese, something like that. And Gabanza beans. And for the most part, they just had to stay on their mattress? That, that's, they were in a room. That was what's available. And the only other things was a, like a hallway to a restroom. And that's about it. And the hallway is kind of very small, kind of claustrophobic. And the room is just a bit taller. Is there someone staying with your mother right now? She's staying with my sister. Okay. Yeah. She really, you know, she was asked many times uh, by many people and she really doesn't want to kind of go there again, at least not now. Finally, I wanted to ask, how closely are you following the headlines, the negotiations, etc.? For some people, they can't focus on the headlines because it's just yeah. re-traumatizing. How is it for you? How are you processing all of this? How have you processed the last 40 days? So I'm, I'm the one that uh, I, I need to follow that all the time, many times a day. And um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's hard uh, because, you know, more people are, you know, there is a war over there, people, people are losing their lives. Then you kind of develop some hopes, you hear about, or there might be uh, some exchange of hostages, some release. And then, no, it doesn't work because of this and that. So there's a lot of kind of a roller coaster up and down. And then you hear, oh, they're only going to release kids and the women uh no they're going to release also the elderly so yeah it's it's it it's tough um but i'm i'm following the news what's your message to people who say this attack was justified or understandable based on how we believe israel treats the palestinians it's crazy you know i i, I think that um anybody that thinks that uh killing babies cutting their heads killing civilians, killing kids, taking hostages, raping women is justified because of some cause. Like, I think it's crazy. I think that you have to look what's happened on that day. Even if you have a cause that you believe in, is it justified to kill babies and to take them hostages? And I can't imagine that you would support killing innocent kids for some cause that you might have. 
Thank you for telling your story. All right. I want to thank Rotem for that conversation, for sharing his family story with us. And now finally to our conversation with 25-year-old Lee Sassi. Jill spoke with her. She's an American woman from California who was at that Supernova Music Festival in southern Israel when Hamas terrorists began the attack. Lee is now back in the U.S. speaking out about her miraculous tale of survival. Jill spoke with her about what took place that day, how she was able to survive, and she discusses how some of her close family members did not make it. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you were at the Supernova Music Festival when Hamas terrorists attacked on October 7th. Miraculously, you survived. Before we get into your story and what happened that day and what you witnessed, it's now been a little bit over a month. How are you doing? That's a really good question. Um, every day is a different day. Um, it's the, It can be the highs and the lows. Right now, I'm doing really good because I'm speaking a lot and I'm being really hopeful that we're going to bring our hostages home because that's our main priority right this moment. So back to just what happened on October 7th, can you just walk us through a little bit about what you witnessed and what you experienced? And I want to start by saying you're an American. You were um, you live in California. You happen to just be visiting Israel. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Um, so I had gone to Israel uh, with my fiance. Uh, he proposed to me there and we enjoyed a wonderful uh, month on vacation. And uh, one of my cousins, he's a party organizer and he organized the event for Nova Music Festival. So we, um, myself and my cousins and uncle, we all decided to go to the event together and to see the event my cousin had put together. Um, so I had gone to the event with my uncle Avi, my cousin Danielle, her husband Maor, and our friend Alex from Cabo. And just mind you, all of us were American citizens, and Alex is a Canadian. Um, we met up at the party with my Israeli cousin Nitsan and her husband and her boyfriend Lido, and we had a wonderful evening. We danced until sunrise, and at uh, 6:30 a.m. on the dot. We saw what looked like fireworks being flown into the sky from, from Gaza, but it wasn't fireworks. It was uh, rockets. And we were told to evacuate the event. Um, and so we got into the car, and I directed my uncle to the bomb shelters that were located on the main road down the street from the event. So I did just that. I uh, directed him to that area. And when we arrived to the bomb shelter... There was already about 15 people inside um, screaming and panicking. And uh, in this moment, I didn't understand why everyone was... I, I, I could understand why they were screaming and crying, but I didn't understand why they were doing it to an extent because it was just rockets. I thought that this was normal protocol for them. But I guess it wasn't. And absolutely, and to be honest, it, obviously it wasn't, it wasn't normal protocol at all. Um, and uh, more people started showing up to this bomb shelter. Uh, mind you, this bomb shelter is a five feet by eight feet uh, concrete box. It's very small and it's maintained to hold eight people. And we were 40 people in this box at the end. Um, after 30 to 40 minutes of being inside this small concrete box, a terrorist uh, walked into the bomb shelter and started shooting towards the hallway. 
feeling everybody that was in the hallway of the bomb shelter, including our good friend Alex, who was guarding the door. Um, then they, uh, they walked into the bomb shelter <coughs> with the gun, AK-47, and started shooting inside the bomb shelter, trying to hit everybody that was inside. Um, everyone that was in front of me and besides me all died instantly or were injured and shot. And the second I opened my eyes to take a deep breath, they had already thrown in two grenades back to back, which exploded, um, which exploded, um, sorry. No, that's okay. Take, take your time. It exploded my uncle and um, he died instantly on his stomach. And you saw this. I saw this. He was sitting next to me the entire time. And that was just the beginning. Um, the terrorists were terrorizing us for eight hours. And every 30 minutes on the dot, new groups of terrorists would come back and attack us with grenades, RPG, um, AK-47 rifles on auto that's automatic and uh, it was terrifying. In the moments when they were throwing rockets, I had to find a strategy, strategy to protect myself. I found I had a jacket that was sitting around my waist. I took it off. I put it on my head. And I started breathing really slowly. to So that way the smoke, because the smoke was going into your lungs from the grenade. And it was just, it was really hard to breathe. Um, and every 30 minutes, uh, new groups of terrorists would come to attack us with trucks, tanks, bikes. You can hear them coming by foot. And every time that they attacked us, they would scream of laughter. They would scream, Allah Akbar. And you can hear the joy in their voices as they're terrorizing us. It was so harrowing. To be in such a situation, seeing people suffer to death, seeing my uncle die in front of me, and just being in a situation where you can't do anything. Like, I felt so helpless for myself and for others in this moment. But I don't know how, but I had courage in me to open my phone and contact my fiancé and be in contact with him during this whole thing. My fiance didn't even understand how bad it was until he actually got on the phone and he heard the gunshots going off in the bomb shelter. So how did you survive? I mean, given the fact that so many people around you were were brutally killed, how were you able to make it? I, I listened to another interview where you said you were literally hiding underneath dead bodies. Yes, um, that's what I did. Every time somebody would die that was next to me, I would pull their body on top of me or pull them on top of my cousin or share them with people who are sitting around that are alive that are next to me because we were, me and my, whoever was next to me, we were in the front. We were very close to the entryway of where the terrorists were throwing the grenades. And so that really, I really truly believe that I'm alive today because of the bodies that shielded me from all the gunshots and all the explosions of the grenade. Because when a grenade explodes, it's particles going all over the place and it like can hit you, you know? 
um, and you can get injured or you can die severely, like really bad. So I really believe that the bodies uh, shielded me from from all of the impact of the explosions. Of the other people that you had went with, I, I know that your uncle uh, was killed, as you just mentioned. What happened to everybody else? So Danielle, my cousin, um, she, we were all sitting in different locations inside the bomb shelter, which I do feel that that's like a blessing because if we were to be together, we probably would have all like one of all of us would have died or one of us would have stayed alive. Um, but Danielle received a bull, a gunshot bullet in her leg when they had attacked inside the bomb shelter. I believe that one of the bullets hit the wall and then hit her leg. So it like she was she she was injured, but thank God she's able to walk and she's healing. And um, that's like the most important thing right now. Um, so she survived or her husband also survived. Um, he was sitting next to me. Eventually he came and sat with me and um, he was really he wanted to, he was really weak. He like wanted to go out walked outside to get water. And I remember I was trying to push him to stay inside and to motivate him that we're going to get out of this alive. Um, my cousin Nitsan and her boyfriend Lidor, when we uh, when the rockets were flying into Israel, we went separate ways when we got in the car. And Nitsan and Lidor went into a different bomb shelter as me. And unfortunately, uh, Nitsan was murdered by the Hamas terrorists. And I had to mention that Nitsan was four months pregnant at the time. And her boyfriend, Lidor, was, um, her boyfriend, Lidor was shot to death by the Hamas terrorists. And the only way we were able to identify that he was shot to death by the Hamas terrorists is that the Hamas terrorists posted a video of Lidor being shot to death as he's running from the bomb shelter. So that's how we were able to, we were able to di- like to identify that. So how did you eventually get out? When did this I mean, eight hours is such an incredibly long amount of time to, to be experiencing something so horrific. When was it the end? How did you eventually know that it was safe and, and you were okay? Um, yeah, so we a car pulled up to the uh, bomb shelter at around two o'clock. It was like one fifty eight in the in the, in the afternoon, and the voice was a Hebrew voice, and we didn't answer him because we were scared that it was a terrorist pretending to be Israeli. And then the voice started walking closer into the bomb shelter, and he said, "Nitzan, it's Abba in Hebrew, like Nitzan, it's Dad." And um, when he said that, we knew that we were here to be saved. And so I had got up so fast. I was the first person to run outside. And then when we all got into the car, Nitsan's father, his name is Moti Ezra, he said to us, don't look outside the window, keep your head down. And uh, we didn't listen to him. Obviously, we had to look outside the window. And it was so sad to see what we noticed. It was burnt cars, people that were burnt to death, people that were slaughtered to death. <sighs> you could see people that were running on the fields that they were got shot, that they got shot to death. It was it was really sad and horrifying to see what happened outside the bomb shelter when we got rescued. 
What was going through your mind as this was all happening? Was it just like, how do I survive? Was it your life flashing before your eyes? Yeah, it's all of that. Uh, my life flashed before my eyes. I think the first thing was my life flashed before my eyes. I became, in sh I was in a shock mode where I couldn't believe that I was in the situation, but also I was in survival mode. So like my emotions froze completely. I didn't cry. I wasn't sad. I was terrified, but I also wanted to survive. And I did whatever I could do in my power to be able to stay alive and to communicate with my family while I was in the bomb shelter and just, you know, try to bring help. Because even though, you know, Nitsan's father came and saved us, I also was sending my location to all my family members in Israel, to commanders in the IDF. I was sending my location to everybody that I that was trying to help me get 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 us rescued, you know? So I really was trying my best to to stay positive. Uh, absolutely incredible. Um so now you're you you're back in the United States and you've been speaking out. What do you make of just I, I'm I, do you go on social media? I, what do you make of just this resurgence and explosion of anti-Semitism in the wake of, of this horrific attack on Israel? You know, what's going on with anti-Semitism, it's really, it's really horrifying to see what's going on. And it makes me feel like a lot of people don't like us. And I think right now it's really important for us to, us as the Jewish community, to, you know, post Art of, um, facts and, you know, show proof about what's really going on and, you know, bring awareness to what's happening in Israel with the conflict, um, you know, and try to amplify our stories so that way we can bring our hostages home. So your, um, to answer your question is I'm, I'm always on social media trying to bring awareness and posting and talking and, and I will never stop talking. And if someone wants me to add, like, if someone comes to me and asks me to tell them, for me to tell them my story, I don't mind to repeat myself a hundred times a day if that's going to make a difference. Because right now, our main priority is to bring our the hostages home. It feels like is that kind of part of a, I don't know how you can heal from something like this, but is this, is that just sort of part of your healing process in telling this story? Of course, it's one of, it's a big, healing process for me and like this week I've been spending this whole week in New York and Washington DC I went and spoke with congressmen and senators spoke to about 25 congressmen and I really feel like we've made an impact and a difference in what's going on because you know right now my main priority is just to make sure that we bring the hostages home especially the children and the the mothers and the kids and the and the sons and the boys it's just really sad um you know as i'm just thinking about your story when you were in that bomb shelter and you said you know part in part you were just in survival mode in part your life was flashing before your eyes were you wondering where was the help 8 hours is such an incredibly long time of course i, I was uh texting my 
soldier cousin, my commander cousin, my, my cousin who's a commander, I was texting her. I was like, where is the IDF? Where are they? I mean, you could hear them outside, but there wasn't so much staff. Um, from what I heard and from what I, I learned is that the reason why they were so short-staffed in the IDF base of Gaza is because the day that the Hamas terrorist attacked us was not only on a Shabbat morning, it was also on the holiday of Simchat Torah. So a lot of the a lot of the soldiers were let go to go home and celebrate the holidays. So because of that, we were short-staffed. And not only that, the Hamas terrorists entered the um, IDF base on Gaza Strip before attacking the, the civilians and killed most of the soldiers in their pajamas. So I can understand why there wasn't that much backup, but for sure I, we were let down and a lot of us uh, lost their lives because we didn't have enough backup, unfortunately. So um, you're speaking out, you're telling your story, uh, which is so incredibly important. And thank you for doing that because I can't imagine it is easy to just be reliving this over and over again. Given where, you know, just some of the misinformation and disinformation that we're seeing, do you have any message to somebody who perhaps, you know, is thinking, oh, Hamas was, is legitimate and was right to do what they did, or it was a, you know, just a resistance movement? Um, you know, do you have any message to, to young people, especially who are in, Many say that they're sympathetic uh, to, to what happened. Um, I truly believe that Hamas started this war by, you know, entering Israel, attacking a lot of us and kidnapping and torturing and murdering us in cold blood. What they did was inhumane. And um, I truly believe that Hamas started this war and in order for us to end, finish this war, we need our children back. So it's really important that, you know, whoever doesn't understand the conflict to go go on Google, go find an article, um, go read history facts from, from the Jewish generations, you know, try and if you don't know, send me a message. I will, I will help you. I will talk to you. Um, you know, we ju it's just really important that we just have civil conversations with one another and try to understand each other because obviously there's always going to be, you know, someone's better than, not someone's better than the other, but there's always going to be two sides and no one's, it's, no one's going to like want to be on the same side, which I understand. Um, but we just have to be civil with one another and understand one another and, you know, not post fake news and, you know, understand the con what's going on between Israel and Hamas. Even, you know, all these, this time later, it's been about a month. It's not that much, but can you even believe it happened? I just, I, how, how do you function I, ha after being through something so horrific? How do you just kind of like get through the day? So since October 7th, my life has only been about the news, putting, um, make, bringing awareness and talking about what's going on and posting about the hostages. Um, so as of right now, I eat, breathe, sleep, what's going what, on, what happened on October 7th. Like I can't focus on anything else. Um, and I'm kind of addicted to it right now because I feel like 
because we're still in this, in this war. We're still going. It, the trauma is not over yet until we get our hostages home. So as long as we don't have our hostages home, I will continue to speak and to be glued to the screen because I can't imagine, I can't fathom what they're going through right now and how the living condition is for these people. It's it's so sad. What was it like for you um, when you you got out, you realized that you were safe, uh, you saw your parents w- for the first time? I mean, what what I can only imagine what the emotions of that must have been like. Um, it was it was very emotional. I was very happy to see my parents, but more so, I was more looking forward to spending time with the uh, families that lost their sons, like that families that lost, like for instance, my aunt that lost her daughter, Nitsan. I was spending so much time with her and uh, grieving with her because we're both like in the same boat. We're both going through the same thing, a little bit different, but like I was there with her daughter. So I felt like it was my call to spend as much time as possible with my cousins that are also mourning from their lost ones and stuff like that. Um, My mom, on the other hand, she was in the U.S. after October 7th, so I wasn't able to see her, but I know that it was really hard for my mom, you know, after what happened to me. She was in a really bad situation. I mean, she only went back to work like last week. That's just how hard it affected her as well. All right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And I'm so thankful that you're okay. I mean, I I can only imagine. It's hard to imagine what you went through. So again, thank you for explaining it and and telling us your story. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. All right. I want to thank Effie, Rotem, and Lee for speaking with us, for telling their stories. I think it's notable what Rotem said that to many of us, we're just looking at the numbers, the 240 hostages, but each of these people have a story to tell. They are neighbors, they are fathers, they are mothers, they are daughters, they are aunts, they are uncles, they are classmates, they are colleagues. I feel so fortunate to have learned about some of them in this podcast. I want to thank all of you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. We're going to continue to cover this war on all of our platforms, including the Instagram feed, the newsletter, and this podcast. And I want to thank again our guests today for sharing their stories with all of us. I'll see you guys soon.